Good morning, everybody. Good to be with you on this first Sunday of Advent. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? We're already here. December has arrived. Advent has arrived. And that means the birth of the, our Savior is just around the corner, right? And we get to celebrate this blessed gift. It is, like uh, for me, as I can only assume for you, uh, one of my favorite seasons of the year, right? Just preparing hearts and minds and getting ready for this glorious opportunity that Christ is coming and Christ has uh, offered us this gift of life. So thanks for being here. If you haven't checked in, I sure want to encourage you to do so. Uh, we always like to know who's with us. Uh, we want to welcome our online community as well. Thanks for being here. And uh, we celebrate your presence, and we just like to get to know you a little bit better. So if you don't mind signing in, uh, whether out at the kiosk or with those QR codes, that's a big, big help. So Advent, of course, right, is the season of preparation, getting ready uh, for the birth of Jesus. And we love to get to the manger real quick, don't we? I mean, we love to uh, see the baby Jesus long before he's born, right? And, and a part of that is just the elation and the excitement that comes with the season. But a part of what I want to highlight today as we begin this journey in the season of Advent and this Sunday in particular about hope is that God brought hope into the world long before Jesus was born. God brought hope into the world in the very beginning of creation. And so millennia before Jesus is born, hope has come, right? The gospel writer of John does it really well when he describes how Jesus was with God in the beginning. It goes a little bit like this, John chapter 1, the first couple of verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory is of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth, in the beginning. We celebrated this a few weeks ago, right, as we went through the Trinity and acknowledged that Jesus had been with God from the beginning. And yet here we are in the season of Advent getting ready for His birth, and yet we also know that, God, that God's birth in Christ is the culmination of God's amazing grace over a millennia. Capture that, will you? That the birth of Jesus is the culmination of God's amazing grace over a millennia. That Christ's story is this, come, uh, this full fruition of who God is and what God has been about, bringing hope into the world. And so Christ's birth is a physical manifestation of that, is a representation of that, but the reality is God's hope stepped into the world long before Jesus. But Jesus becomes emblematic of that, right? And so part of the reason we named this worship series The Big Picture Christmas is we want to acknowledge that the big picture of Christmas is that God had a design and a desire for this welcoming of healing and wholeness and hope long before Jesus was born. And yet Jesus helps represent that and bring that in a real and tangible way, in such a way, in fact, that we cannot help but glean this hope and, and grasp hold of this hope and celebrate this hope because it reminds us that there is something beyond us, that there is a wonder and a joy and a power beyond even us, right? And so part of what we celebrate at Christmas and certainly in this season of Advent is that Christ brought that hope in a tangible way, that he is God's representation of hope. And I love the way uh, Peter wrote it in his first letter. Peter describes this hope 
about Jesus, and he describes it this way, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth for everlasting hope for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That hope is what we're celebrating during Advent. That hope is what grabs hold of us and helps us to know that there's something beyond us that gets us up in the morning, that keeps us out through the day, and that helps know that tomorrow will still bring something glorious, right? That is what this hope is, and that's the celebration that we uh, uh, celebrate this season. Now, hope is an interesting thing, right? Because hope is something we want. Hope is something that we strive after. Hope is something that clings to us, but sometimes it's hard to describe or to define it, right? I just put two simple words to hope. It is a confident expectation. Confident expectation. Confident because God's involved, right? Hope is not about wishing and dreaming. Wishing and dreaming comes from us. I wish this would work. I hope this, or I dream that this might happen, right? Dreaming and wishing comes from us. Hope comes from God. And the confidence part of that is knowing that God is with us and God is for us. And the expectation is the glorious realization that God is still at work and that God continues to be in our lives and touching our lives in very real and powerful ways. Hope is the confident expectation that all will be well that somehow beyond all circumstantial evidence that life will go on, that things can work out, that somehow God is with us and for us, right? Confident expectation. And this happens by God's grace, through God's actions, long before Jesus is born. And I want to highlight today how I believe that takes shape. And it comes to us from a very early text the very first book of the Bible, the book of beginnings, Genesis. And in that book of beginnings where God begins to lay out all things, both through creation and through covenant with Abram and the many who follow him, in and through this beginning book, we see even in an obscure scripture passage that God is building hope in the world through Jesus long before he's born. So hold out with me here. You remember Abram, right? Father of many nations, the progenitor of all things Christian, all things Jewish, all things Muslim. He is the, the father of all nations, right? And he enters into a covenant with God. And from the very beginning of that covenant, Abram wants things to go well. Abram wants the relationship with God to be good. Abram wants the people of God to go well with God, right? And in particular, Abram has this nephew that he originally owned property with. His name was Lot. And he and Lot determined, golly, we can't coexist. We got too much stuff. We got too many things. We need to go our separate ways. If you read Genesis, you realize that Lot chooses the wrong path, right? He goes off to what would become Sodom and Gomorrah. Bad choice. Abram, on the other hand, goes a different direction, but he always has a heart for Lot, and he always wants to help provide for Lot. In fact, several times he needs to save Lot. You read Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15, all the way through chapter 18, and a lot of Abraham's journey is he's trying to save Lot. Well, sure enough, we get to Genesis chapter 14, and Lot's gotten in trouble. And there are many Eastern kings who are kind of out to get him. Well, Abram takes over. 
And Abram defeats those eastern kings. There are four of them. And Genesis 14 kind of describes how he overthrows those kings. And then he comes home happy and he wants to celebrate. And that's where we find ourselves in Genesis 14, verse 18. He has come to celebrate his victory. And we have this obscure text that begins a powerful journey of the birth of Jesus millennia before he's born. Here's what, uh, here's what Abraham encounters in verse 18 of chapter 14. And King Melchizedek of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered our enemies into our hands. And Abram gave him one-tenth of everything. Now, if you've ever read this story in Genesis, my hunch is you probably went right past it, right? Because it's a weird name, Melchizedek, and he seems to appear out of nowhere, and what he does seems a bit strange and unique. And so most of us, when we read chapter 14, number one, there have been a whole bunch of weird names anyway. And then we get to Melchizedek, and we're kind of like, yeah, I'm going to keep going, right? But we've got to pause here because Melchizedek is a fascinating character on so many different levels and somebody that we don't hear from often. In fact, Melchizedek is only referenced in three different books of the Bible, one of which is right here in those few verses, right? So we know about him here. Then we don't hear from him again until David, the king, is writing some of the Psalms. And in Psalm 110, David acknowledges Melchizedek some 1,000 years after Abram. That's a long time. That's a big old gap. How did he remember? What was he thinking of? And why is he speaking or writing about Melchizedek? But nonetheless, he is. And we're going to talk a lot more about Psalm 110 uh, in a few minutes. But hang a hat right there. A thousand years after Abram uh, is blessed by Melchizedek and makes an offering to Melchizedek, David is writing about him. Then put a pin in that and realize that some thousand years later, another thousand years, an author writes the letter to the Hebrews, and in the letter to the Hebrews, this guy named Melchizedek comes up again. And in the book of Hebrews, which is a fascinating book, I want to uh, uh, call your attention to this letter. The letter of Hebrews has two primary purposes. One is to acknowledge that all of the rituals and all of the law and all of the uh, sacrificial worship and what the high priest did was important in the Old Testament. You can't write it off, and the letter to the Hebrews acknowledges that. That's why it's called Hebrews. And it wants to connect the dots of this sacrificial worship and, and all that that means to what it is that Jesus brings. And so the second purpose of the letter to the Hebrews is to acknowledge that Jesus is the great high priest above all else and is the great one singular sacrifice above all else. And so I want to highlight that book because as it connects to Melchizedek, it's going to make all the sense in the world how God's hope began some 2,000 years before Jesus was acknowledged a thousand years before Jesus, and then right after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, a letter is written that acknowledges that Jesus is the great high priest and ultimate sacrifice, offering hope to the world. Let's come back to Melchizedek. He is acknowledged as a king and a priest, both. That's highly unique. There are only two others in all of biblical history that are identified as both priest and king, and he's going to be the first. And he's a priest, mind you, take note, he's a priest before the Levitical priesthood has been established. 
Aaron hadn't walked the face of the earth yet. The Levites don't exist, but he's a high priest. And he's a priest not only uh, in the form of the Levites, but not a Levite, but he is a priest for the Most High God, El Elyon. Wow. He, he, he comes out of nowhere, and he's got a funny name. And he is the priest of God, and he is the priest of all that God has established. How fascinating is that? And then we cannot ignore what both he does for Abram and what Abram does for him because it makes a huge difference in how we understand who this strange man named Melchizedek is. Notice he, he blesses Abram. Blessed be Abraham by God most high and blessed be God most high, right? He blesses Abraham. Well, you got to know about blessing. I mean, you don't bless somebody that you're inferior to. You can't. You don't bless anybody that you're below. You can't. That's not how blessings work. Blessings come from on high. Blessings come from the more powerful. Blessings come from somebody who has more stature. I'm going to bless you. A father blesses his child, or a king blesses the patrons, or a priest blesses those in whom they've been trusted, right? You can't bless somebody unless you are kind of up here, right? And then take note what Abram does. Abram says, golly, this is pretty cool, and I'm grateful for the blessing, and I'm glad that this has happened. I want to offer you a tenth of everything that I've collected. I want to offer you a tithe. He makes an offering, and that likewise is an acknowledgement that Melchizedek is better, bigger, higher, however you want to describe it, than Abraham. I'm not going to make an offering to somebody who's not a priest. I'm not going to make an offering to somebody who doesn't have some value and purpose here, right? So he makes an offering. So Melchizedek who we've never heard from before, have no understanding of who he is, he's a big guy. Maybe not stature-wise, but he's important, right? He plays a massive role, and this becomes critical to how we need to understand him for the future. We know a couple other things about Melchizedek, just there in the text. So remember, it says in Genesis 14, verse 18, I am Melchizedek, I am the king of Salem. Salem. You heard that word before? Salem? That's a unique word, isn't it? Salem is an ancient term for Jerusalem. So when he acknowledges that he's the king of Salem, he acknowledges that he's the king of Jerusalem. We all know, in hindsight, Jerusalem's a pretty important place, don't we? We all recognize that Jerusalem is kind of the center of the then known world and certainly the religious world of the Hebrews, right? And he is the king of that. How'd that come to be? But he is, and the text tells us so, and him being the king of Salem becomes important because Salem, as Jerusalem, is critical. It's critical to who Jesus is, it's critical to our faith, and it's critical in the world even today with all of its turmoil, right? But here's what we also know about the word Salem. It is an Aramaic word, and it is the Aramaic equivalent of the Hebrew word shalom. Salem means peace. That's what the word means. So uh, Melchizedek is the king of peace. He's the king of Jerusalem, but he's the king of peace because he's the king of Salem. And so he's in essence acknowledging I am a king over a very specific concept, God's peace. I don't know about you, but I hope for peace. I long for peace. I desire and yearn what it is God has desired and yearned for millennia, a peace in our world, a peace in the Holy Land, a peace among the Palestinians, 
It is the desire of God's heart. And Melchizedek is the king of it. But he's not just that. Remember Hebrews, the letter, describing how Jesus is the great high priest and acknowledging that Melchizedek was a priest, in fact, a unique and highly distinctive priest? You look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 2, and in describing Melchizedek, this is what the writer of Hebrews says in verse 2. His name means first king of righteousness and therefore, uh, therefore also king of peace because uh, that is, uh, he's the king of Salem. So he's got two names. He's not just the king of Salem, that is say the king of peace, but he's also the king of righteousness. How'd that come to be? Well, it's in his name. Melchizedek combines two words that literally mean king of peace. Melchi is the Hebrew word for king. That's the first part of his name. Tzedek is the Hebrew word for righteousness. And so his very name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. How cool is that? Righteousness means to be made right with God, to be connected with the life source, to do what it is God is calling us to do. And Melchizedek is both the king of peace and the king of righteousness, making us right with God. Well, Hebrews isn't done yet. There's a whole left with Hebrews that helps us to better understand Melchizedek because as the king of peace and as the king of righteousness, he's helping us to see some 2,000 years ahead of time that there's a king of peace and a king of righteousness coming. Verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 7 describes Melchizedek even further. It says that there is no record of his father or of his mother, nor of any of his ancestors, no beginning of life and no end of his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling what? Son of God. Wow. 2,000 years after this guy walks the face of the earth, gives a blessing to Abram, and receives a tithe from him, he is above Abram, who is, by the way, in the lineage of Jesus. He is above any other king and priest who, by the way, are the lineage of Jesus, who is a king and a priest, right? The third of the three. But we're not done yet because we haven't stepped back into David's time. When David is writing Psalm 110, some 1,000 years before Jesus and some 1,000 years after Melchizedek, David begins to write a Psalm 110. And 110 is a fascinating little psalm that I want to invite you to go read later today. It's only seven verses. It's a very short psalm. But did you know that Psalm 110 is the most quoted scripture of the Old Testament in the New Testament? It is quoted uh, in Matthew, in Acts, in 1 Corinthians, in Ephesians, and yes, even in Hebrews. And all of them are about this kingliness, and in particular, a couple of times about Melchizedek and acknowledging that he is the priest of God under a unique and distinct order. And so David writes about himself being both Lord, that is to say king, and priest in Psalm 110. In verse 4, David says this, the Lord, meaning God, the Lord <laughs> has taken an oath and will not break this vow. You, David, you are a priest forever according to the vow of Melchizedek. Wow. How cool is all this? 
All of these bits and pieces from all of these centuries are coming together, not just about Melchizedek, this guy about whom we've never heard, comes out of nowhere, has no seeming lineage, and yet is both king and priest. How do we understand him? Well, we understand him as the first and distinctive king and priest. And then David becomes the next most distinctive king and priest, unifying the nations of Judah and Israel and helping them to come to understand the power of God's hope. There is a future. There is a possibility. And God is at work in all of this. And then ultimately, Jesus, who becomes king and priest of all, right? What a wonderful gift, because we then begin to recognize that Melchizedek sets up an understanding millennia before Jesus about how God is a God of hope, how God is a, hope, a God of peace, and how God is a God of righteousness and desires that for us all. I don't know about you, but I find an immense amount of hope in the realization that God is working a thousand years before David and a thousand years after David, bringing this hope into reality. Remember the book of Hebrews. Jesus is the high priest, even above Melchizedek. And he says this in chapter 6 about Jesus. Notice how he describes Jesus. This hope, that's Jesus, this hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. This hope, Jesus, leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Wow. Genesis 14, the beginnings of the start of the covenant with Abram all the way thousands of years later to the birth of Jesus, who becomes the ultimate high priest, who is sometimes known, by the way, as the Prince of Peace and the Son of Righteousness, Melchizedek, King of Salem. I don't know about you, friends, but as weird as all of this seems, as distinct of all, as all of it is, it is God's recipe for hope, starting long before Jesus, moving towards the great ancestor David, and ultimately towards the great high priest who is the ultimate sacrifice beyond all sacrifices, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I am hopeful, as I pray you are, that you discover this understanding of Jesus long before he was born, that it helps encapsulate everything that God desired from the very beginning of time, that you would know that God is a God of hope, that you would know that that hope is found and based in peace and being made right with God and collecting for us the very opportunity to know that God wanted us to know that so clearly, so above board, so reality-wide that God sent His only Son to be, more, be born among women, to bring to us a tangible force called hope, a confident expectation that God has been and will be at work throughout time. My prayer for you and for me 
is that in this season of Advent, preparing for the birth, that we would know that hope. And that we wouldn't just know it, but that we would share it. That we would be, as Pastor Doug said, purveyors of hope, standard bearers of hope, message bringers of hope. That's what we're called to do. You have been given new birth of a hope that is beyond compare, not only in the birth of Jesus, but in all of his predecessors who made it possible. Thanks be to God that we can gather around that hope and that we can share it with others. Will you pray with me? Holy and blessed God, thank you for the gift of Melchizedek, king of peace and king of righteousness. Thank you, God, that he was the forebearer of our Savior, Jesus, and that he pointed us from millennia beforehand to the way and the truth and the life. Help us, God, now not only to believe, but to be that hope in the world. Thank you for your Son, the great high priest and Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. May we find his hope and share it well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.